will give a talk, uh, a similar type of talk, and I think you will be entertained by it. And since the topic is going to be about uh, Goldie, uh, Goldilocks and Three Little Bears, I'm sure you've noticed that we've had locks here, and that we have the porridge is still warming up, and we haven't made up our mind if it's too hot or too cold or just right. But, uh, and on that point, I'm going to have Rabbi uh, uh, Bowman give the introduction over here. I just wanted to thank the Burnbounds for, um, among all the other things they do, for coming up with this idea, seeing it through to the end, and uh, taking care of all the details of breakfast, and of course, providing us with the speaker. We have the close of having Rabbi Shaffel, um, the Rav of the Young Israel of Skokie, who is a Rav, he's also a Dayan, um, and um, he is going to present many different aspects of halacha. Um, Alan told me about what he had heard, and I think we can expect uh, something different and, and, uh, and wonderful. Shaffel. I need my mouse for the Goldlocks and Three Bears. Thank you. I want to thank uh, all of you for uh, for coming. Uh, when Dr. Birnbaum called and said that it was going to be a, uh, a diverse crowd, so, you know, there's different, uh, as with everything, there's different definitions of what the diverse is going to be and trying to address, uh, come up with a shear which is going to address the uh, the needs of everybody. And from my experience over the years, Hoshim Mishpat is one of those uh, topics which is really universal. Uh, as much as it's important to be able to study the material inside, Baba Kama, Baba Metziah, Baba Basra, and the Rishonim, and the Shulchan Aruch, and all the, the Mepharshim, all the commentators there, but it's something which people with no background whatsoever have an easy ability to associate with, because everybody understands money. Everybody thinks they understand money, and everybody is able to go ahead and discuss it on a uh, relatively sophisticated level. And it's something which, uh, unfortunately, though, um, Chosh uh, Mishpat has been relegated, or people think that it's been relegated, or it's important for the scholars. Those who are going to be the most outstanding of Tamida Chachamim, they're going to be the ones who are going to delve into, and they're going to be the ones who are going to study and specialize in Chosh Mishpat, the special smicha for that. But the truth is, is that Chosh Mishpat is part of every person's life on a daily basis, without exception. Anytime you interact with a, another person, anytime you sit down with food, you borrow something, you sit next to somebody, all sorts of uh, cases we're going to see, all sorts of things, Chosh uh, Mishpat uh, end up controlling and end up dictating to us what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, what are we allowed to do, what are we not allowed to do, what's my responsibility, what are my rights, and it's something which is, which is literally uh, everywhere. And as I said, without exception, men, women, men, women, and children the same. Everybody is going to be guided ultimately by uh, by Chosha Mishpat. Um, I give a, a much longer introduction to, uh, to Chosha Mishpat and the importance of Chosha Mishpat. But if I were to do so, so then we'd never actually get to Goldilocks and the Three Bears, and that's much more important than what I have to say. So, one of the things which, uh, uh, as a as a show rough, one of the things which I try and do is when it comes time to give a major shear Shavuos night for Shabbos HaGadol, Shabbos Shuvah. So anytime I can take something I'm learning anyways and incorporate that or segue that into one of those, uh, one of those drushas, so that makes my life much easier because I can just take what I'm learning, go ahead and, uh, and use that in the, in, for one of those shurim. So the past couple of years, Shavuos night, I don't know where the idea came from, but the idea to go ahead and give a series on uh, fairy tales from a Chosha Mishpat perspective came to mind, and it's been extremely, extremely successful, because everybody knows the stories, and then when you look at them from this different angle, this different perspective, suddenly, not only does this story become much more alive, 
but it becomes much easier to be able to process through the halachas. If I were to tell you I'm going to give you shir on Pilchos Kinyanim, nobody would show up. Maybe the breakfast would cause people to show up, but nobody would show up for a shir on Kinyanim. But as Dr. Brimbaum will tell you, if you have Kinyanim in the context of the three little pigs, suddenly it becomes a fascinating discussion of how exactly the pig and the farmer make their Kinyan, and they have this exchange of a bundle of straw for a first harvest. It is a recognized Kinyan. It's not. It becomes something which is alive and real, and that's really the point, is to... Uh, is to uh, come to the realization that Chosha Mishpat is alive and well, it's a regular part of our lives, and we need to be more mindful and conscious of it, and that will make us uh, certainly more compliant in, uh, in Halacha. So we're going to try and do, the, the goal of this is to have the most informative fun we've ever had. So the story is fun by definition, the analysis is going to be fun, but hopefully it will come with a lot of information at the same time. So we begin with the story. Once upon a time, there was a little girl named Goldilocks. She went for a walk in the forest. Pretty soon she came upon a house. She knocked, and when no one answered, she walked right in. So here we already have our first Shiloh. She's walking into somebody's house, and without any permission. The issue, which obviously we have to address, is the issue of trespass. Nobody invited her in. Nobody said there's no sign that says, Welcome, anybody who wants, come in and can go ahead and eat, which she literally went ahead and took upon herself, and she did. And what is the halachic uh, uh, issue which is involved in going to somebody's house without permission? So here you have, from Chosha Mishpat, Simen Shin Sama Gimel Sivav. Those who learned in yeshiva are well familiar with this, and this is one of the sources, because every time we do this, the material grows exponentially, so to get it all in, we're not going to necessarily read everything inside. You could go ahead and uh, uh, make, your, uh, make yourself at home by reading it. But there's a famous sugya, a famous uh, discussion in the Gemara, of Zenene Vizelochaser. One person benefits, Ruvain is going to benefit Shim from Shimon's property. Shimon loses nothing by it, and the parameters of that. So the case is, the case which the Gemara discusses is Ruvain has a house, so he may have a vacation house off in uh, uh, South Haven? In South Haven. So somebody has a vacation home, in, a summer home in South Haven. Over the winter time, he's not using there because there's not much to do in the winter time, so some person, some homeless fellow, Shimon, decides, I need a place to stay, I'm going to move into Ruvain's home during the winter time. And Ruvain, for whatever reason, decides he's going to go visit during the winter time on his way to Detroit, on his way to Cleveland, wherever he's going to go. And he goes in there and he sees Shimon's living in his home. He says, how dare you be living in my home without permission? And he says, I, you've probably been here the past couple of months. I'm going to now charge you rent. Usually it costs $500 a week for, you to, for somebody to rent my home in South Haven. I'm charging you $500 a week for every week that you were here. Does Shimon have to pay? There was never an agreement with them up front. So the halacha is, without getting into all of the details and nuances, Zenene, Shimon, was able to benefit from Ruvain's house. Zelochaser, assuming that Shimon didn't use any of the utilities and didn't cause any damage, no water, no gas, no electricity, none of that. He was just living in the home. Zenene, Shimon benefits. Zelochaser, Ruvain doesn't lose anything by it. Ruvain isn't allowed to charge Shimon for the time that he was there. That's what the Gemara says. That's kofin al-midastom. That's a halacha, which is, uh, which is explicit. Comes along the Rishonim, the commentators, the earlier commentators, and they say it's true that when Reuven catches Shimon in his home, Shimon is not, Reuven is not going to be able to charge Shimon for the amount of time that he was there, but Reuven can now say to Shimon, say, get out. I want you out of my house, and you're not allowed to stay here anymore. From that point on, if Shimon stays then Shimon would have to pay. 
easy way to remember it is once you say say, then you have to pay. The other has to pay. So as soon as he says to him, you get out, so he's going to have to pay. Now the question you have to ask yourself, which is not explicit in Shulchan Aruch, is, let's say Reuven goes, throws Shimon out. Shimon then comes back into the house against Reuven, without, against Reuven's permission, against his explicit instructions to get out and never come back. Now Shimon is certainly now, he's a direct trespasser with, in direct violation of Reuven's instructions. What Avera has Shimon committed? What is the Avera of trespassing. If you have Shimon comes to you and says, I violated over this past year trespassing on Ruben's property, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur are coming up soon, I need to know which al Khait should I focus on to think about when I went ahead and I trespassed on somebody else's property. Yeah. Kamocha would certainly be a bit say. He said no, so doing anything against his will, yes. Good. Is that it? It's only a violation of don't do unto others what you wouldn't want uh, to be done to you. What? Dina de Machus Adina, good, that's as well. Interestingly enough, there's no al for Dina de Machus Adina. I guess they expect that we actually drive the speed limit all the way from Chicago here. I'm not saying we did or we didn't, I'm just saying. He has to pay the rent. Huh? He has to pay the rent. He has to pay the rent, but what what, what Aveira. He has to pay the rent. But he pays rent. He, if Ruven catches him the second time, and now he pays two months' rent. So he, pay, he, pay, he paid the bill. So this is an important question. There is a concept, this is something which, uh, which uh, comes from a tshuva of the Machanachayim, that he develops a, a principle whereby there's a concept of geneva, there's theft, without having to pay anything for that theft. Usually we think of, if you steal something, you have to pay, sometimes you have to pay kefel, sometimes you have to pay double under certain circumstances. Sometimes it could be dal vehe, you could pay four or five times. But there's a concept of having to pay, but there's also a thing called theft without having to pay. It's built on a, a concept that uh, the Chazal referred to if, uh, if, uh, if uh, Gentiles were to go ahead and study Torah, so Chazal referred to that as an act of theft. Now how is it an act of theft? We still have our Torah. They can't take the Torah away from us. So if we always remain, usually theft is, I have a talus, somebody takes that talus, he now has it, and I don't, he's stolen that from me. And therefore there's liability for that and everything which goes with that. Over here, if somebody, if somebody takes something which I still have, so what kind of theft is that? Karka yeah. also in an exalus. It's also true. You can't actually steal, uh, steal land. Right, so that's a, that, that, that reinforces the question. So what's the Avera? Uh, it could be if you had to ultimately sell it. So it could be a Hamas, it could be a Losachma, a Losisava, a, 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 there could be things along that sort. But this principle is, there's a concept of theft without any liability, because if you think about it, the fundamental definition of ownership, of bylus, is that I have control over my property. That's the most important thing about bios. If it's my car, I decide what to do with my car. If it's my house, I decide what we do with my house. If it's my computer, I have the right to decide what I want to do with my computer. As soon as you impose yourself on me, you force yourself on me, you've stolen not something monetarily, not something you have to repay me for, but you've stolen my ownership. Because you now have control over my house, because you've gone in the house against my will, you've wrestled from me my bilis, my ownership, and that is an iser, according to the Machanachim, it's an iser gzela, it's an iser of theft, even though there's no monetary consequence to that. Huh? Seemingly a deraisa, yeah. Seemingly an iser deraisa. That is 
seemingly what, what Goldilocks, as soon as she walks in without permission, she has no right to go and do so, no reason to believe she was invited. She has trespassed. Trespassing, as far as halach is concerned, is this iser gezela of stealing bylaws, stealing ownership, even though there's going to be no monetary consequence. Okay, so so far we've got one date for her to go. <laughs> What? What, is, what? What do you do? You She's got to clap on She's got to ask them for like yeah. any. We'll, we'll, we'll get to it at the end. The end of it is going to be her weather, her chuba. Yes. We're going to both. Yeah. At the table, at the table in the kitchen, there were three bowls of porridge. Goldilocks was hungry. She tasted the porridge from the first bowl. This porridge is too hot, she explained. So she tasted the porridge from the second bowl. This porridge is too cold, she said. So she tasted the last bowl of porridge. Ah, this. Because she's Jewish. Ah, that's a ah. This porridge is just right. She said happily, and she ate it all up. So, the question is going to be whether or not she has any right to believe that she's allowed to eat that food. Now, the sugi over here, the the, the source over here is a, a. I think it's a relatively famous shach, one of the primary commentators in Choshen Mishpat, where he talks about uh, an idea of the, the scenario that he's referring to is. Let's say, uh, right now, that there's some leftovers. And I decide that my poor family is home without me. They're probably thrilled. But my poor family is home with, without me, and they're probably starving. So I'm going to go ahead and line my pockets with some Ziplocs and some uh, garbage bags. And I'm just going to take all the leftovers, shovel it into my pocket, and I'm going to take it home. Am I allowed to do so? Am I allowed to go ahead and take food, which is out there? This food is out there, it is being served. Am I allowed to take it home, put it in the freezer, save it for another time? You go to a bris, you go to a chasna. Are you allowed to go ahead and take that food home with you? The specific case that the shach is referring to is, Ruvain is sitting at the table, sitting at his host's table, and he decides he's going to take some of that food and give it to Shimon, who just came knocking on the door looking for a handout. So is Ruvain, the guest, allowed to go ahead and give that food to Shimon or not? So, the Shach quotes from, uh, from Tosos, and he maintains that it's something which is going to be Aser. Why is it going to be Aser? So for this we need a little bit of an introduction, and that is, I forgot to fix it, it's going to be Yeyush, Russian tables is hard, the acronym Shalomidas. Yeyush Shalomidas is a long sugi in Bab Yeyush is when a person loses an object, at a certain point when the person is aware that the object is lost, we'll use the example of a big pen, so you realize, you put your hand into your pocket, you say, oh, where's my pen? It's lost. Oi, I've lost my pen. So as soon as you say, oi, not the ah, which is the geschmack, but the oi, so as soon as you say, oi, I've lost my pen, so that is called yeush. You've now, that's despair. One of the girls at TI, use that, use that as a translation, which I like very much. She, you despair the loss, as soon as you despair the loss, so now the person who finds it doesn't have to return it to you. Now there's a question in the Gemara about what about what, what's going to be the halacha when it's yeush shalomidas. What does it mean when it's shalomidas? It means you find a big pen on the table. And there's no simon, there's no identifying marks, nobody scratched their initials into it. It's a standard blue medium big pen. Thousands of them exist all over the world. There may be hundreds of them in this room at this very time. Nobody is going to be able to identify it, and you see it there. Are you allowed to go ahead and take that for yourself? So certainly, there's no doubt that as soon as the person reaches into their pocket, they realize that they've lost the pen, they'll say, Oi, I've lost my pen. I lost another one. But you have no way of knowing if they're aware that they've already lost that pen. They may not have reached into their pocket yet to find out whether they have that pen. 
That's Yehosh Shalom Das. As soon as they realize, they'll certainly say, Oi, I've lost my pen. But if you don't know that they've had that realization as of yet, so there's a machlokis in the Gemara, Bai and Rava, are you allowed to go ahead and take that? Can you assume already that it's lost and gone? And the person, will, since inevitably he will say, Oi, I've lost my pen. You could already take it. Or do you actually have to wait for him to say, Oi, I've lost my pen. Since you don't know who the owner is to listen to whether or not he said, Oi, I've lost my pen. You're not allowed to take it. So here the shot says from Tosos, he says, we pass him lie. So when you see the big pen on the table and you haven't heard anybody say, Oi, I've lost my pen, you're not allowed to go ahead and take it. Even though we know for sure when he realizes he's going to abandon hope and he's going to, he's going to despair, since he hasn't yet, you're not allowed to give it up. So the Shach says from Tosos, it would seem to be that when Reuven takes the food from his host, even if he says, my host is the most generous person, host is is generous like the Birnbaums who are providing all of this food for everybody. An uh, extremely generous person, if I were to ask him, if he were to be here, he would certainly say, yes, give the food to Shimon. I'm more than happy to share my food with Shimon. But since we pass in Yehosh Shalom Idas, is not Yehosh, that means that Reuven cannot take the Birnbaums' food and give it to Shimon. Because that would be a violation of Yehosh Shalom Idas. He hasn't yet abandoned, he hasn't given you permission to give that food away, even though eventually he'd be thrilled to know that you shared the food with Shimon. Right now he hasn't given you that permission, and therefore you as a guest at somebody else's home, you have no authority whatsoever to take some of your host's food and give it to somebody else. Comes along the shop and says, in the very respectful manner that you speak to we to showed him, below me Stafina. Says if I wasn't afraid to disagree with the Tosos, I would actually say that he's wrong. Now he doesn't want to say that. But he goes ahead and he says that I really disagree. Because he says, it's got to take out your thumb a little bit. He says, what's the idea behind Yehosh Shalomidas, behind Yehosh? The reason why Yehosh Shalomidas works is because the owner of the big pen has no choice but to despair. It's a regular pen. It's nondescript. There's no simonim. There's no identifying marks. He has no choice. When he reaches into his pocket, he says, Oi, I've lost my pen. He doesn't really want to give up ownership of the pen, but he realizes he's never going to get it back. So being that it's against his will, because he doesn't really want to give up his pen, so that's why you have to wait for him to actually make the pronouncement of, Oi, I've lost my pen. Anything short of that, it still remains his. As opposed to, uh, As opposed to, in this case, Ruvain giving away his host's food to Shimon. So he says in his last lines, If Ruvain knows, that the host would be thrilled that Reuven is sharing the food with Shimon. And once he knows that he'd be thrilled, it's considered that you have it with permission because you know he'll be thrilled and he wants to give it away. And therefore, it's considered as if it's being done in this permitted manner. It could be assumed he would not be mocked. So, Goldilocks may or may not, depending on how well she knows the bear, the bear family, but whether or not she knows them, she may be able to assume that maybe it's, a, it's okay. Like the shah, I would be permitted to take the food. Now, if anyone were to ask a shayla, there's machlokas between Tosos and the shah about whether or not she's allowed to decide on her own that the bear family is an extremely generous family and they would love to share the food. She's entering into a suffolk deris apostas. She's ending the suffix. Is she allowed to go ahead and take that without their permission? Like Tosos, it would be an Isidorais of theft. Like the Shach, it may very well be permitted. There's a uh, um, Imre Baruch. 
Imei Brach, one of the commentators on the on the on Shulchan Aruch, in certain sections of the Shulchan Aruch, he maintains, based on a different sugya, but he maintains that in the event that people are very friendly with one another and they know each other and they borrow and they lend things all of the time, especially food in bungalow colonies and South Haven and these types of things. So people have a very good relationship. One could uh, assume that, like the shach, and one could assume that it would be permitted to go ahead and take somebody else's stuff because you know that they'd be thrilled and without having to worry about the theft. The specific case, which we wrote about once, uh, an article in the, in the Business Weekly, was somebody gets to the bungalow colony for Shabbos. Right before the Shabbos, they realize, oh, we forgot the grape juice, there's no wine, there's no grape juice, how are we going to make Kiddush? And they know that their neighbor lives in the next bungalow over, is not there for Shabbos. They have a chasna in, the, in town, as they say in New York, chasna in town, and they're going to be gone the entire week. And you know that they have plenty of grape juice there, and you have the key to their bungalow. Are you allowed to go? You can't get in touch with them right before Shabbos. Are you allowed to take the bottle of grape juice with the intent to return it right after Shabbos? As soon as you get to the store and get another bottle of grape juice, you'll return it. Are you allowed to take it from them without permission? You have the key. Huh? You have the key. You have the key in case something happens, in case you need to, uh, you know, but not necessarily, not necessarily to take the food. Not to raid the, the fridge. <laughs> that's already, that's key plus. Is, uh, <laughs> you need a gold card or something. For, uh, for that. So... According to the Imre Baruch, though, being that you have a very close relationship, you've been, you've been next-door neighbors in the bungalow for years and years and years, so he actually maintains that it would be permitted, that you could follow this opinion of the Shach, knowing that they would be thrilled to go ahead and take it. It's a, sort of like a Zen-Nen of Zelochaser type of thing, even though you're taking it, but you're returning it. And we actually posca that it would be uh, permitted in that instance. Yeah? You would argue that Goldilocks, in this case, has no right to assume that bears would share the food with the three bears and there's three bowls Orange. So that's, I mean, that's the breakfast or whatever, whatever they do. Uh, so, she, uh, you know, she, it's been prepared for three people, there's three portions. Right. So even even if she knows that they're generous, she should not, she couldn't make such an assumption in this case. Uh, look, look, I would also say that uh, probably this is number two uh, against her. It's going to be more than three strikes you're out. She's going to hit a couple of foul balls, I guess, along the way. <laughs> but uh, but she's going to, well, we're going to see, we're going to, we're going to discuss her truth at the end, but I would agree with you. In this instance, as the story is presented, she really has no right to go ahead and take that to take that food. Do they have to return? Huh? Do they have to return the grape juice? They, yeah, they, they have to replace it. Yeah, they have to replace it. Because, I mean, that's the relationship. is uh, you, They borrow and, and lend to one another. It'd be Weitrich. It, it could be. We could say that they could take it also, but there would be an additional thing. Okay. The story continues. After she'd eaten the three bears' breakfasts, she decided she was feeling a little tired. So she walked into the living room where she saw three chairs. Goldilocks sat in the first chair to rest her feet. Okay. Now, the halacha is, and this is something which is explicit in Shulchan Aruch as well, they are, everybody knows, if I were to say, I'm going to give a shir on Geneva and Gezela, everybody here would say, there's no way I would ever steal anything. Because in our minds, we think stealing is going to be either, I was talking last night, either it's a pickpocket, I would never pickpocket, either it's a mugging, I would never do a mugging, it's going into a bank with a note saying, I've got a gun and I'm ready to use it, and you know, fill up this uh, sack with cash, whatever, the, whatever they be. I would never do any of those things, and people think that there has no shaykh, there's no relationship to them whatsoever. But the truth is, is that there are many instances in which it's very easy to violate an iser of Geneva or Gezela, just because ignorance of the halach and the parameters of the iser. So here, and a classic example of this is, uh, the Shulchan Aruch says, If you borrow something, if you, we'll put it in terms of borrowing, because that's the way we rationalize our mind. If you borrow something from a friend without permission, nikragazim. 
That's called theft. So if you decide that your friend has some golf clubs, or your friend has a bicycle, which they leave out in the yard, and you'd like to go ahead and you'd like to uh, you know, get some exercise because it's summertime, it's been as morning for some people, this is the one time a year they could go ahead and exercise, then I remember why I don't exercise the whole year because it's one event. So you decide that I'm gonna go ahead, my, my neighbor is gone for the week again, they're on vacation, they're not going to be using the bicycle, I'm just gonna take the bicycle, I'll ride a couple miles this way, I'll come back, the, bi the bike will be fine, I'm not using any gas or anything like that, what could be the problem? The problem is, Shoel Shalomidas, if you borrow something without permission, Nikrigazan. So that is called theft. So if she decides she's going to sit on their chair, on the chair, she's going to use their stuff without permission, so Nikrigazan. Now, immediately the hands will come up and say, hey, wait a minute, that's not called Gazela. Because the way Chazal understand the concept of Gazela based on the Pasuk is, Again, you have, a, you have a spear. I go ahead and I grab the spear away from you. So if I grab the spear away from you, I now have possession. I've done a Kenyan. Meshicha, whatever the Kenyan is going to be, I've taken it from your possession. I'm now holding it. So in order to steal something, generally, you have to take possession of it somehow. And over here, all she did is sit in a chair. So if all she did not sit in a chair, she didn't lift up the chair, she didn't move the chair, she did nothing other than sit herself down in the chair. Is that called gazelle? Is that a shoel shalomidas? Is that considered borrowing an item without permission, which already crosses the line into into gazelle? So it would be there would be bylaws, right? Right. So according to that, so it may, it may be maybe a bylaws, but it could very well be that there's 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 two things that there's a concept that hishtamshus of an item, like a bench, and this is really the next source. Hishtamshus usage of something is also considered to be a Kenyan, is considered to be a proprietary act, which then brings it into your possession, which could then make you liable. So, for example, you have the Ramah, Shin Pe'alaf, he says that, uh, uh, on the flip side, this is going after the case that the, the Ramah is going on, is also a case in the Gemara where you have five, uh, five people sit on a, a bench, one after the other. Ruvain owns a bench on his front lawn. And then Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Yisachar, Zulu come and sit down. By the time the last person sits down, the bench collapses from the weight. The question is, who's now liable for breaking the bench? Because the last person says, well, it wasn't my weight which broke it, because if the rest of you weren't sitting on the bench, it wouldn't have broken. So each one is pointing the finger. It's like trying to get to figure out which of your kids is responsible for whatever broke, whatever spilled. So each one pointed the other one that this one took it out, and this one used it last, and that one, that nobody's responsible to do anything. So in the same way, you have that. But the assumption from the Shulchan Archa is that somebody's going to be liable. Ramah comes along and says an amazing thing. Now, I, I really only want the first phrase of this right now. We're just going to read the whole sentence, and it's going to be a little bit revealing for later on. But okay. The assumption is, if you have a bench in your front lawn, not that you have to go into your backyard, but if you have a bench on your front lawn, it's assumed that you don't mind that people are going to go ahead and sit on that bench. It's there for the public. It may not be a public bench, literally, but it's assumed that if you sit on it and you're not going to harm it at all, you're not going to carve your initials into it in any way, you're just going to sit on it to rest your feet, and then you're going to go on your way. The Ramah says it can be assumed that people aren't mocked And you can go ahead and you can sit on it. Vim nishbra tachtein. There's a part which I don't want now, but I'll go ahead and it'll, maybe it'll make it easier later on. In the event that it breaks, you sit down on it and it breaks. Havi kemesa machmas melacha. That's considered to be a circumstance where it broke in the normal course of usage, which we're going to elaborate on later. Upeturim milashalim. And one will be exempt from having to pay in that case. So seemingly, Goldilocks is going to say, I 
Paschal like the Ramah. And it says that to sit on somebody's chair, regardless of whether normally using something without permission, Shalosh Lomidas is going to be a Gaza, is not going to be a Gaza, and how exactly you take possession of it, I paskin like the Ramah in Shin Payalef, and I hold that Stam chair is there for sitting, and the, the owners are not Makbit, and therefore, this is something where I have not yet crossed the line. But once you do that, though, right? So it could be that, but maybe, maybe yeah, once you're already in, so then. Could be that that's not vital in Aveir. We'll have to see. Yeah? You're taking each Pontiac story as an entity within the in and of itself. But if you establish from the beginning that trespass is a violation, does everything else follow as well? Whether or you can explain it one way or another. The fact that she trespassed by everything that she does, that's Well, some things may be, uh, uh, and it did, there may be multiple violations. So far, as we said, trespassing would not would not uh, she wouldn't be obligated to pay anything for that avera. So far, she doesn't owe the bears any money. But she's still a violation. Right, she's done at least two averas, possibly three already at this point. Many of the violations will follow from that. Correct. Correct. She's certainly not getting Tzadikus of the Year award for this uh, this particular year. I don't even think she's in the, the short list of those people who are running. Okay, so she says, this chair is too big, she exclaimed. So she sat in the second chair. This chair is too big too, she whined. So she tried the last and smallest chair. Ah, this chair is just right, she sighed. But just as she settled down into the chair to rest, it broke into pieces. Now, even if we're talking about, which we are, baby bear's chair, if you ever look at it, if you've ever seen a baby bear, a baby bear would on all likelihood be larger than whatever you imagine Goldilocks is. Goldilocks is a little girl, and certainly a baby bear is going to, that's capable of sitting in a chair is going to be larger than that. So there's no reason she should expect that the chair is going to break in the course of sitting on it. So what is the halacha if you sit in somebody's chair, assuming that you have permission, you sit in somebody's chair, in Loma, you sit down, and the leg cracks off, or the bag, the back of the chair breaks off, and now the chair is broken, are you obligated to pay for the chair which is now broken? Again, you didn't misuse it in any way, you just sat down as you normally would happen sometimes. Everybody's been in school, everybody knows school stuff breaks in the normal course of usage, you have no idea when it's going to break, you sit down, and it breaks, is there liability or not? So this is something which uh, uh, there is a uh, uh, a disagreement about the following case. The Mishpatei Torah is a uh, is uh, written by Ritzvi Spitz. He's a dying in Yerushalayim. I'm using him just because he has the most concise summary of it that uh, that, w- that we're looking for. But he elaborates on this concept of Mesa Machmas Malacha. We'll do the Gemara's case. We'll do the practical case, and then we'll go through the uh, the, the details. The Gemara's case says, "I say to you." As far as I know, in Indiana, everybody here has a farm with plows, right? So I really don't know, because I'm from the big city of Chicago. But uh, so I say to you, listen, I need to go ahead. I'm going to make a little garden in my backyard. I need to borrow your cow to go ahead and plow. Do you mind if I use your cow for a couple of hours to do some plowing? You say, absolutely not. I'm taking the neighbor's bike over here for a bike ride, so you're more than happy to go ahead and take my cow, and you can use it for the next three hours while I'm biking. Okay, beautiful. So I go ahead and I take the cow, I make one furrow, I make another furrow, in the city they don't know what a furrow is, and then I'm going on my third row, I'm making my third furrow, and lo and behold, the cow has a heart attack right before my eyes, keels over and dies. So I call you up, I say, 
you got a dead cow on my property. Do you mind removing that because it's, it's really getting in the way of my, uh, of my of my garden? So you say, what do you mean a dead cow? I said, your cow had a heart attack and it died. I called Animal 911 as quickly as I could. Hatsala doesn't do cows. So there was nothing I was going to be able to do to save it. And I'm sorry it's dead. So you say to me, okay, you're a showel. You were a bower. A bower is responsible for almost anything. And therefore, pay me back for my cow. I said, I should pay you back for the cow. Your cow had a heart attack. It wasn't my fault. I didn't give it a heart attack. I told you I was going to be plowing with your cow. You gave it to me. If you give me the cow with that understanding, it's not my fault if it was incapable of doing the job and it had a heart attack. So this is what's referred to in halach as mesa machmas malacha. So this is where the, the cow died, machmas malacha, while it was doing its job. And the Gemara says, even though a shoel, even though a bower is almost always responsible, one exemption is mesa machmas malacha. If the cow dies while it was doing the job it was supposed to do, I, as the bower, am not liable at all. I can say to you, I'm so sorry, here's your cow, and uh, a good and tough. Have a good day. Hope you enjoyed your bike ride. So, now, there's a disagreement, and that's the first paragraph over here, is there's a disagreement how to understand the concept of Mesa Machmas Mulacha. One opinion is the Ramban, and the Ramban is sort of how I explained it, and that is that if I told you I'm using the cow for plowing, and I used it for plowing, I didn't misuse it in any way, and it died in that, the onus, meaning the responsibility for the cow dying is your fault, it's not mine. You obviously gave me a defective cow because I didn't misuse it. I told you exactly what I was going to use it for. Your cow, it turns out, was incapable of doing that job. You told me the cow could do that job. I said, can I borrow it to plow? You said, absolutely, you could use it. You're good to go. So I used it, and I thought it was good to go, and it died. That's not my fault. That's your fault. That's what he says. Even if even if the owner himself had no idea that the cow had a heart murmur and plowing on this particular day at this particular time would trigger a heart attack, it doesn't matter that you didn't know. The bottom line is, I had no, there was nobody expects me to know this. It turns out it was a defective cow. If it turns out a defective cow, it's not my responsibility. That's according to the Ramban, the working definition of Mesa Machmas Mulacha. It's your pshiyats, your negligence, that you gave me an article, you gave me a cow in this case, that was incapable of doing the job. The second explanation is that of the Ramah, not the Ramah in Shulchan Aruch with an Aleph, but the Ramah, one of the, uh, one of the Rishonim. And he has a different de- definition of Mesa Machmas Mulacha. He says the definition of Mesa Machmas Mulacha is if whenever you lend me something, there's an understanding that certain things can occur. Not work-related at all, but certain things may happen in the normal course of usage that you understand when you give it to me, it may happen. Chazal's understanding was, I may say, do you mind if I take your cow, can I take your horse and drive back to, uh, to ride back to, uh, to Chicago? You say, no problem. My horse is good to go. Go ahead and ride back. The, cow, the horse is perfectly capable of galloping from here to Chicago and back without any problem whatsoever. But along the way, some, some thieves come along and they horse jack the cow from under me. I'm left on the side of the road. The thieves run off with the horse and I call you up and I say, I'm so sorry, but I was in that. I went through that dangerous place between, I think it's called the Skyway, between Chicago and, the, and South Bend. And on my way there, those thieves came out, the trolls came out. They stole it from me. I'm so sorry. According to the Ramah, since it's known, 
making that as a given, since it's known that there are thieves along the road between here and there, when you lent me the horse to go from South Bend to Chicago, knowing that there's a risk that thieves may come, that horse jackers may come and take it from me, so it was a known risk that you took, and again, I'm not responsible. What's the practical difference between them? Practical difference between them is very simple. In Chicago, I imagine the weather is similar over here, but in the wintertime, as it gets cold and snowy and, uh, and, and icy, and they plow, and all of the different things which, are, which, go, uh, which go into a Chicago winter, so there are huge potholes which come up, and they can't keep up, they can't fill them fa- fast enough, and there reaches a point on some roads where you literally can't drive at all without hitting potholes. So I say to you, do you mind if I go ahead and borrow your car to drive to South Bend? Or it doesn't have to be. I'm going to go to Peterson Park. So I'm going to go from one neighborhood to another neighborhood. Can I borrow your car? You say, sure. I'm not using the car anyways. Again, I'm on my bike ride. So you go ahead and you take the car and you drive down one of these streets and one of these potholes were unavoidable. Drive over it and you pop a tire. So you as the borrower, you would like to say, it's not my fault. Why should I have to pay for a replacement tire? So whether or not the borrower is obligated in to pay for the replacement tire is going to be tolu, is going to be dependent upon this machlokas. Like the Ramban, you gave me a perfectly functional car. All the tires were intact. They could all be new tires. There was nothing wrong with the tires. So being that you didn't give me a defective item, so I, as a borrower, I would be responsible to pay for the replacement tire. According to the Ramah, being that n- lending a car in wintertime in Chicago is known that you're going to hit a pothole, and potholes have a tendency to go ahead and pop tires, you, that was a known risk which you took, and therefore I would not be responsible. I could call you up and say, I'm so sorry that, uh, that uh, it happened, that uh, there was no snow in the thing, there was no ice in there, and it actually popped the tire. I'm so sorry, it's at the shop, they're fixing it right now. As soon as they're done, I gave them your number, and they'll go ahead and they'll, uh, they'll call you, and you'll pay for it. So here's a very practical difference in So Goldilocks, back to our story, Goldilocks sit down, sits down on baby bear's chair and doesn't misuse it at all. She certainly doesn't weigh more than the bear. She sits down and the chair collapses. So is she obligated to pay for the chair? This is where we now we ratchet up a, a notch. Is she, does she now have her financial responsibility? So seemingly, she should be able to claim Mesa I sat down in the chair. I used it in the normal manner. I didn't misuse it at all. Certainly, you can't hold me liable for that. So as she's falling, she's having this thought. I was at that chair from Rabbi Shafflin's South Bend, and I know before I hang my head, I could be, have the comfort of knowledge of saying, I'm not going to have to pay for the chair. But the matter is not so simple, because there's a famous drisha about this. The Drisha says, the Drisha is one of the commentators to the tour, and he says over here, and this is part of a longer piece where he's discussing, but the main thing for us is, the Drisha says that when does a person have the exemption of Mesamach Masmalacha, when can a person say, I'm not responsible because it broke in the normal course of usage? That's only if you are a Shoel Birshus. If you had permission to use the other person's stuff, then you could say, I'm so sorry. You told me I could sit on the chair. I sat on the chair. It broke. I'm sorry. It's not my fault. I don't have to pay. But over here, since she's trespassing and she doesn't have permission to go ahead and use it, the exemption of Mesa Machmas Malacha doesn't apply. And the Drish actually says, 
So there's a concept in halacha that if I get to South Bend and I realize I forgot my talus and fill it at home, what am I going to do? I have to dive in with Dominion and there's no talus and fill it. I could say, is anybody here have their talisans filling in a cubby? Can I take theirs because they already davened in an earlier minion? They dab, they're going to be davening in a later minion. They're going to be davening elsewhere. Can I use their talisans filling without permission? So according to the strict letter of the law, according to the way it's brought down in Shulchan Aruch, that's okay. Because we have a principle, people are thrilled to do mitzvahs with their money. So if you could go ahead and use my talus or my tefillin to fulfill a mitzvah, as long as you fold it up the same way that I, uh, that I like it to, to be folded, you have permission to go ahead and take my talus and tefillin, you could go ahead and do so. So even though, the Drisha says though, even though that you're allowed to go ahead and take my talus and tefillin without my permission, nonetheless, in Yiskalkel, mitokach, in the event that something happens to it, then then you are obligated to pay. There's no exemption of when you take something with implied permission. I don't even want to say implied permission. When you take something which you're allowed to take but without explicit permission. Because you're not a borrower, borrower with permission. In order to be, have the exemption of it will only work if you have permission to do so. If you take something without permission, even though halacha allows you to take it, but you don't have the owner's permission to take it, the exemption doesn't work. The Ramah, right. So that would mean... If I would sit on the bench and break, I would have to pay for it? So that's why I didn't want to read that. So now th- that ruling of the Ramah is going to be tolerated. It's going to be dependent on this. So like the, like the Drisha, he would disagree with the Ramah, and he would say that you have no that she does not have the exemption when she sits down on the bench, even if we assume she's allowed to, because Stam Safso is, is for the sitting. Since you didn't get, she's not a Shoal Midas. She doesn't have explicit permission to sit on the chair. The exemption of Mesa Machmas Mulacha doesn't apply. So, like the Drisha, if she thinks about the Drisha as she's falling, so then she's going to say, Oi, now I'm going to have to pay for this chair as well. But it's not such a simple matter, because the Bear Hetev in Hilcho Shofer also addresses the same case, different context, but the same case. And he says, you can read it because it's short, he says, If you have a shofar, and I need to blow shofar on Rosh Hashanah in order to fulfill the mitzvah, if you're not around, I could take your shofar. I can blow it in order to fulfill the mitzvah. We hold you can blow all hundred kolos, even though many of them are just a minug. I can use it to blow all hundred kolos, and that's again, people are thrilled that their property is being used to fulfill a mitzvah as long as it doesn't diminish the property at all. You have the right to take the shofar and go ahead and blow. But what happens if you blow the shofar and you get a really good tekiah going and you decide, I'm going to I'm going to see how far I can get this Kia Gudola to go. And you're going, and you're going, and you're going, and you're going, and suddenly, crack. The shofar cracks. So, you're thinking to yourself, Oh, but the Drisha says, since you didn't have explicit permission from the owner to borrow the shofar, you don't have the exemption. The Be'er Hetev says, The Be'er Hetev disagrees says if it breaks, even in the case where you have permission to use somebody else's stuff without the das, without the explicit permission of the owner, the exemption of Mesa Machmas Mulacha is still going to apply. So Goldilocks, as she's falling now from this chair, she's now thinking to herself, there's an exemption of Mesa Machmas Mulacha, but there's a machlokas between the Drish and the Ber Hetev, am I going to be exempt in this particular case? Bam! Then her head, head hits the floor, and then she forgets everything. Yeah. Yeah. 
It could be that it's afterwards. Until you put it back, probably. Well, until you have time to, uh, to, to put it back, Pashas, you would, uh, you, would, you would be there. So now, we have a Shiloh over here, whether or not she is going to be obligated to pay for the, uh, the chair. One of the most important phrases, uh, what was I, one of the most important phrases of when you study Shulchan Aruch is the phrase, if you want to say it in two words, it's going to be keenly. If you want to say it in a longer sense, it's going to be a motzi The most difficult thing in all of Hosh is to for, is to be able to force somebody else to reach into their pocket and to give you money which they maintain they don't owe you. So anytime there's a machlokas, anytime there's going to be a disagreement, so the bears are going to file a case against Goldilocks in Basin. They're going to say, she sat on the chair without permission, it broke, she should have to pay us for the chair. And she's going to say, with all due respect, keenly, I maintain the halacha is like the Berhetev. Berhetev says, I don't have to pay. You, have the, you, bear family, now have the burden of proof that we pasca like the Drisha, not like the Berhetev. Since that's an impossibility, it's not possible for somebody to be machria, to decide the halacha definitively in a machlogas between the Drisha and the Berhetev, she's going to be able to get away with this one as well. And we're not going to be able to obligate her to pay money. Yeah? But then, but that's the stam safsel. That's why you go to the stam safsel. Stam safsel is only not only in the case where it's outside, where it's assumed to be used. It's in a safsel in my house. I don't assume somebody's coming to my house to use my chair. It's only when they're in my house on the table or in, or outside of my lawn. If it's in my house, it's not my. It's not somebody's assumed house that should come and sit on. Yeah, but you're here with permission, huh? You're here with permission. I'm here to give a shear. Am I allowed to sit on the chair? What? <laughs> you could you could come up with such a scenario that you invite somebody into your home, you know, for you know, you know, somebody comes, uh, you know, collecting money. Oh, come in, you know, let, I have to get my check, but come in, don't you know, don't stand outside. And they decide to go ahead and they sit down in the chair. Do you have the right to say to them, "How dare you sit down in the chair? I told you to come in. I didn't tell you to sit down in the chair." Well, I feel that you asked me before. The person is trespassing. There's almost an assumed position that I'm I'm not allowed. Much as he came in without trusting. Maybe, maybe yes, maybe no. That may make, make for a good uh, argument in the in the din tower. If you want to have that machlokas, uh, I'd be more than happy to. Okay, now she's had a long day already. Many averas, averas are, are very tiring at times. So Goldilocks is very tired by this time. So she went upstairs to the bedroom. She lay down in the first bed, but it was too hard. Then she lay in the second bed, but it was too soft. Then she lay down in the third bed, and it was just right. Goldilocks fell asleep. Now, what is the thought that she has that lulls her into her sleep? So she's figuring, again, because this has been her, uh, her assumption all along, is that the Bear family has been extremely generous to me up until this point. They've allowed me into their home. They've allowed me to eat their porridge. They've allowed me to sit down in their chairs. So there's no doubt that they would be thrilled, because I'm so tired already at this point, that I go ahead and take a nap on their bed. So she thinks to herself, Orachayim, sorry, it's not Choshemishbat uh, reference, but it's a, it's a Choshemishbat halach in Orachayim. But this is a lacha that I mentioned before, that a person has the right to go ahead. If you, if you need a talus, somebody else's talus is there, they're not going to be using it. They're not available to ask. The halacha is if they're there, you have to ask them. But assuming that they're not available to ask, you could go ahead and you could use it. What do they tell talus havera? You're allowed to take your friend's talus. <coughs> and you can even go ahead and recite a bracha. I love this halacha. 
Eat matzah with kapelas. But you have to fold it up the same way, because people have a certain way of folding up their talus, a certain way of wrapping up their tefillin, it's the same way. And if somebody's going to be, it will rule their whole morning if they come back to the talus and tefillin, and somehow the shalrosh and the shalyad are on different sides, and it's wrapped up a different way, and the talus isn't folded that way, ois mensh uh, literally is going to be. So the halacha actually recognizes that the that need. And then the, the Ramah says, who had tefillin? And the same thing is going to be true of tefillin. Interestingly enough, though, in the time of Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah, you could use somebody else's talus and tefillin. You can't use a safer without permission. And this was just a cultural thing at that time. That talus and tefillin seemed to be readily available in people. They were a dime a dozen, it seems like. Sarim were very difficult to obtain. If uh, a safer got ruined, you'd have to go ahead and you'd have to get somebody to write it from scratch again. It wasn't like somebody could just uh, you know, download or something that you could just make a photocopy of or even go to the store and order it. So it was a very difficult thing, and people were extremely protective of their sfarim. Many posts can hold that nowadays it's the exact opposite. Sfarim. It's okay, you want to use my sitter, use my chumash, use my gemara. There are people who are very lenient as far as that. Don't touch my talus. I don't know who you are. I don't know your hygiene level. I don't want you wrapping yourself in my talus. And same thing with tefillin. You don't necessarily want somebody putting tefillin, your tefillin on their body because you don't know where they've been. So it's an interesting way that it changes. Things change, but that's okay as far as the salach. And the Mishabur explains, as we said, that the Nechalim Enish, the Levin Mitzvah B'mamone, people are generally thrilled to go ahead and do a mitzvah with their, with their possessions. So here she is, she's sleeping on Baby Bear's bed, and she's dreaming, or Chaim, Simen Yudalad, Sif Dalad, with the Mishavura, Sif Katan Yud Gimel, ah, now I can go to sleep in peace, finally I've done something which is not Naveir. But that's really not so simple. Because there's, uh, again, Chaim Moshe is a person who's uh, alive nowadays, he's a, he's a Ger Chassid in Yerushalayim, he's, one of the, he's a Malachite, he's somebody who gathers together uh, what has been written since the time of, Sho- uh, of the Mishavura till today, so he supplements a lot of the halachas in the order of Shocharach. So he says here a very interesting thing. He says, if Whether or not you're allowed to take a child's mitzvah object without permission, this is something which probably almost everybody here has done. Your child wins a sitter for having studied whatever, having read through all of Tehillim, having done some Mishnayas. Your child is a sitter. You need to go ahead and bench. You need to dab minchamar. So you grab your child's sitter without permission. You say, Certainly, Yankel will be thrilled if I use his sitter to go ahead and bench that Mar. So Chaim Moshe says, The posting disagree whether or not the principle that a person is thrilled that their stuff is being used for mitzvah applies by a child. Because maybe it only works by those who have das. An adult has das, however we're going to define das, but only an adult has das, only an, an adult is capable of thinking that through that they want their stuff to be used for the purpose of mitzvah. It may be that a child who's lacking that das, but a child who's lacking that das, you can't make that assumption that they want their stuff to be used, and it may be that you're not allowed to use it. Now you have to think twice whether or not you're allowed to use your... Now, as a parent, certainly whatever they acquire is really yours anyways. So as a parent, you're good to go. But somebody else's child, so then it becomes a Shiloh here, whether or not you'd be allowed to take it in order to do a mitzvah without their permission, which means, I'll get to you one second, which means as Goldilocks is going to sleep, dreaming about this halacha, that you're allowed to take it while she's sleeping on baby bear's bed, Baby bear, she may not be able to assume that baby bear authorized, if we're assuming that it's a mitzvah for her to go ahead and rest. Shabbos, it's a mitzvah to rest. But if we go ahead and we make that assumption, so whether or not she's allowed to make that assumption with baby bear's bed, that itself may also be a violation of halach. Is, if, is getting permission from the owner of something a 
maybe both of them. Um, even, even if David Gerber is there and gave permission, would that, would that make it a possibility? Um, it could be. I mean, they're, 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 uh, that would be more uh, related to the uh, to Jack and Beanstalk uh, story. Oh. We talk more about the, the kingdom. <laughs> so yeah, next uh, next time we'll have to get. To, I talk about that over there, where he, he makes the kenyan with the uh, with the uh, the beans for the cow, cow for the beans. So that's the difference. So now here we get a bunch of uh, stuff together. Then, yeah, she was sleeping. The three bears came home. Someone's been eating my porridge, growled Papa Bear. Someone's been eating my porridge, said the, ma- said the Mama Bear. Some- she gets a the. Oh, the, also Papa. Someone's been eating my porridge and they ate it all up, cried the Baby Bear. Someone's been sitting in my chair, growled Papa Bear. Someone's been sitting in my chair, said the Mama Bear. Someone's been sitting in my chair and they've broken it all to pieces, cried the Baby Bear. They decided to look around some more and when they got upstairs to the bedroom, Papa Bear growled. Someone's been sleeping in my bed. Someone's been sleeping in my bed too, said the mom bear. Someone's been sleeping in my bed, and she's still there, exclaimed the baby bear. So now what happens? Goldilocks panics, and, as we're going to see, just then Goldilocks woke up and saw the three bears. She screamed, help, and she jumped up and ran out of the room. Goldilocks ran down the stairs, opened the door, and ran away into the forest. And she never returned to the home of the three bears. Okay. So, Baruch Hashem, she says, I was Mekayim, at least one mitzvah today, of Shmarta Masnaf Shoseichem. I ran away and I escaped from the bears and I, I was able to escape that harm. But, she has a lot of other things which she now has to consider. Which is, as we know, now we go to a different place in the Archaim, we say that, that when it comes to transgressions between a person and their friend, Yom Kippur is not going to provide kapar for all the things which she did wrong. Yom Kippur is not going to be able to do anything for her until you go ahead and you're Matthias. You have to ask permission, you have to ask for forgiveness from the person that you offended. If she doesn't do that, she could spend all day clapping al chaits and it's not going to help. Because the bears, all three of them, still hold a grudge against her for having trespassed on all the things which she did. And even if you did nothing financial to somebody, even if all you did was you called them a name, nonetheless, so you have to go ahead and you have to ask, you have to ask for forgiveness. Mishavura says, certainly, if you stole from somebody and you have it, or you exploited somebody in the context of a business transaction, you overcharged them or you underpaid, or you broke somebody else's stuff, I assume, so you have an obligation to go ahead and repair that, rectify that circumstance before you walk into Yom Kippur and start clapping Ashamu Baganus and all the different Alphates. So for, for Cinderella, that's a different one. For Goldilocks to go running away into the, into the forest and not saying even I'm sorry on her way out, so she's not going to have a hard time on Yom Kippur. And the Sharetzion adds, he says, near Pashut, he says that it's obvious that in the event that you've stolen something, you've caused somebody harm, that you can't even ask for permission until you pay them back. First, code and code, you have to go ahead and you have to repair things on a mumminous level, on a monetary level. Then you go ahead and you ask them for forgiveness. And then you can go into Yom Kippur. By her running away to save her life, and not, as far as we know, because the story ends. So without asking them for forgiveness, so she's going to be carrying these Averas with her for a long, long period of time. Now, what you're going to say to yourself is, but wait a minute. She is a katana. She's a minor. 
And as a minor, she's not responsible for anything she does. A kata and pigiasa and ra, anything which they do is a terrible thing. We get questions like this all the time. A child, a neighbor's child threw a rock through my window. How much do the child's parents owe me? The answer is nothing. The child broke it. The child's not responsible to pay. Parents aren't obligated to pay. They may want to. They're good neighborly relations. But they can't be forced to pay for the damage which their children inflict on somebody else's property. So really, they owe nothing. So here, Goldilocks, as she's running away, she's saying, it's a good thing that I'm only 11 and a half, and therefore I don't actually have to pay for anything because they can have no tainas on me. By the time Yom Kippur comes, it'll be after my bar mitzvah, bas mitzvah, and then I'll be able to go ahead and I'll clap all my alchets and my asham levagadus, and I'm good to go, and nobody can have any tainas on me whatsoever, and I may still win the Tzadikas of the Year Award. <laughs> However... Now, this is something which is fascinating. I spoke, I was mentioning it before, I spoke to, uh, one of the things which I do is, uh, for the Chosha Mishpachola, is I, uh, uh, they write the articles for the Business Weekly in Lush and Kodesh in New York, the Hasidish fellows, and then they send it to me. I'm the one who has to then put it into English. Then we edit it together. And then we also coordinate in terms of answering Shilas. So the phone call Shilas and the email Shilas, again, it goes through a series of dying number one, dying number two, dying number three, and then it gets sent to, to me to go ahead and actually write up the response to the person who asks. So there's nothing better to learn Chosha Mishmah than to actually see hundreds and hundreds of Shilas and to see how they process through the questions and how you, uh, how you really think through a Shilas. So I mentioned to one of these, uh, these people that, I, that I'm very close with, that I, that I talk with, that I was giving a share, I was a little hesitant, because I don't know, you know, he's pretty Hasidish, so I didn't know if he even, even know what Goldilocks is. But he happened to remember the, the story, as I mentioned before, the one thing that I suddenly mentioned Goldilocks is that porridge. That was the word that, that, that stuck out in his mind, which he was excited about. So we talked, uh, we talked a little bit about Goldilocks and the halachas related, and I, Baruch Hashem, I pretty much got the things which he was thinking about in the story as well. And then the next day, I get an email from him, which says, you might want to look in the Pischei Tshuva in Shin Mem Tes, Sif Katen Beis. Okay. So I said, okay, I trust him. I'm going to look at what it says in Shin Mem Tes Beis. And you'll be shocked. You'll think that I took the whole Goldilocks story from the Pischei Tshuva. So he says, it's a Shus Yaakov. He quotes, I'm going to start from here. Ogos, it's going to be the story of so a child was sent out to pick up some more wine. This is before they had, uh, you had, you had carded, we, you know, card hard, whatever the phrase here in Indiana is. Before they would send him, so they sent the child with, uh, they gave him some money, as it says. They gave him some money, they said, go to the store, get us another six bottles of wine. Okay. So he walks in, and the wine cellar is wide open, and there's no proprietor there. There's nobody there. So what happens when, it's like Goldilocks. So he walks in, he knocks on the door, there's no answer, so what does he do? He took a lot of wine without paying for it. He spilled some out. He, he drank some, he spilled some out. Okay, he had, a, he had a real party over there. Then the owner of the wine hears that this child, Yankala, was in his wine store, drank some wine, spilled out some wine, made a huge mess. And the tovela katan acha shehigdil, and he waits for the child's bar mitzvah. As the father finishes saying baruch shepatzon miyanshal shalzeh, he goes out and hands the child and says, "Yankala, here's the bill for all of the wine which you drank and which you spilled on that uh, on that day, on that fateful day." Sheyishalmo hezeko v'demei v'dalayeno, and the barrels or the bottles of wine. V'kasa so Shus Yaakov writes to the charm before b'choshem mishpat simin shin memtas deim eno beein. 
that if a child steals something, this is a Shinmem test, is in the halachas of Gnev and Gzela, so in the event that a child steals something as a child, child stole a package of gum, whatever it is, if by the time they're an adult, whatever they stole is no longer in existence, you can't hold the child responsible for what was stolen, even though they're now an adult. So they stole a bag of chips when they were 12. Now that they're 13, you say, I want you to pay me 50 cents for that bag of chips. Say the bag of chips is long gone. I don't have to pay you. And therefore, seemingly, Shavuos Yaakov says that this child who broke into the wine cellar and drank some wine and broke the bottles of wine, you cannot obligate the child to pay anything. But, but the Shavuos Yaakov says that this is really not true. The Iker Din... Uh, when do we say that the child doesn't have to pay for what he stole? That's only if by the time you want to make the child pay, the stolen item is already gone. But, but if the child didn't just break something, if the child actually ate the food and derived personal benefit from what was taken from the owner, once there's the hana that the child has, so the Shus says you certainly have to pay, even as an adult, because you have to pay for the hana, you have to pay for the benefit. nearly, and even more so, the Shus says, even what was ultimately destroyed, in if the child wants to make sure that they'll have no tainas on him when he gets up to Shemaim after 120, it's also appropriate for him to pay. We can't force a person to satisfy their moral obligation to pay for what they broke as a child, but the child should know that now that they're adult, there may be a tainas, there may be a claim against them when they get to Shemaim, and you might want to take care of that while you're here rather than to wait for them to go ahead and take care of that later on. When a child does a, commits an aver as a child, even though there's no liability as a child, when the child becomes an adult, they have to go ahead and attend to all of those averes which they committed. The main thing is to go ahead and appease them, and to go ahead and pay. It's just that Basin can't force the child who's now an adult to go ahead and pay, but the child should be aware that he has that responsibility. So now, here we have the case of the Shus Yaakov, or Goldilocks, does she have to pay for the porridge? So like the Shus Yaakov, since she ate the porridge, and she benefited from the porridge, when she becomes an adult, the Shus Yaakov actually holds din. According to the letter of the law, she must send the check to the bears to pay for the porridge which she ate. Do we pass it like the Shus Yaakov? That's something which is also subject to debate. Maram Shik explicitly disagrees. He writes, he cites this, and he says that he disagrees with this principle of the Shavuos Yaakov. He says, child does it, the child can never be forced to pay. He agrees that there's a chiv, Latzai Sidei Shemaim, the Raman, Shin Mem Gimel, in the Orchaim talks about that. But there is a chiv, there's an obligation, Latzai Sidei Shemaim, Latzai Sidei Shemaim, to satisfy one's heavenly obligation. But the Aram Shik disagrees that just because there was Hana, there was benefit, that we could force the child to pay. And seemingly, when the Mishra talks about this topic, 
he does not cite this piece of with the Shrus Yaakov, so seemingly also gives, uh, gives support to the idea that the Mishabura seems to reject this uh, principle of the Shrus Yaakov, that you would have to pay for damages which you committed as a child once you're an adult if it involved enough, it involved some sort of benefit, and that's something which, again, the child who has done that, they might want to speak to the Rav and find out exactly what the, what the responsibility is, is going to be. So with this, we, uh, we finish. This is the end of the, uh, the, the, the story. Um, I hope that it was, uh, it was uh, true to my word, that it was the most informative fun that you've had in, in a while. Maybe yes, maybe no, you'll, uh, you'll let me know. But the other thing is, is I want to uh, conclude by thanking, again, the, uh, the beer bombs for, uh, for sponsoring this, this, uh, this wonderful event, this opportunity for many people to, to sit and learn. I thank Rabbi Bowman also for allowing me to, uh, to come and to share some, uh, some Torah, to have fun, and to share some Torah with you. And Mirza uh, Shev, everybody should have uh, much success. Anybody who wants... If you want to write down the phone number for the hotline, now hopefully you'll have many Shilas as a result, 877-845-8455. Again, 877-845-8455. That's the number that you would call for, uh, for Shilas. And everybody should have a wonderful, uh, safe day and a good Shabbos. If anybody has questions, I'll take questions. Okay.